Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. My name is Mike Stacks. This week we have something special as we take a trip to the offices of Pickwick City Records in Long Island City, New York, where, in 1964, a young college grad and rock and roll enthusiast called Lou Reed was working as a songwriter. I'll be talking to writer Phil Milstein, one of the world's foremost Velvet Underground experts, about his story in Ugly Things Number 60, documenting Lou Reed's time at Pickwick City and the unlikely series of events that led to him first meeting John Cale and forming an alliance that would have an incalculable effect on the face of modern music. Okay, Phil, good to have you here. The title of the article is Where Things Happen, Terry Phillips, Pickwick City, and the First Meeting of Lou Reed and John Cale. So let's start with that. Why is the first meeting of Lou Reed and John Cale so important? Well, obviously, uh, their being connected and knowing one another leads us to the Velvet Underground, and I don't think I need to explain for your audience the significance of the Velvet Underground since the 1960s, but uh, for popular culture in general, they're now elevated to the level of almost of being a uh, household name. And of course, they had to meet somewhere and they met working in different capacities for a budget label from a neighborhood of Queens, New York called Long Island City. Um, the company was called Pickwick Records. Uh in the course of working on the article, I asked a few friends a particular question that, that reflects here, which is, had John Cale and Lou Reed not met at this time, would they inevitably have met soon enough afterwards? In other words, if it wasn't for their respective assignments at Pickwick, would they have met? Most of my friends have said, yeah, they thought that they were um, on diagonal paths headed towards one another. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. Obviously, it's speculative question, but I think it's quite possible they could have uh, not met at all or met simply in passing and, and not in a significant way. Yeah. Um, I grew up very close to New York City and have a pretty good sense of the geography of the city. And the fact is where Pickwick Records was located it's only about five miles from lower Manhattan, where John Cale was located, but it was um, culturally miles away. And Lou was not hanging out in the city very much, and they were just working and moving in different social circles. The music they were working on was quite different from one another. And it seems to me quite possible that their paths would not have crossed were it not for this. Uh, as I phrased it in my article, a mere hummingbird's fart may well have set its principles along differing paths. <laughs> Very well put. Articulate, huh? Oh, they, oh, yeah. oh that's why you're a writer, Phil. Um, you know, they may have met different people that would have sent them on different paths, and we might have had two different versions of the Velvet Underground called something else. Yeah. 
without the key elements of Lou Reed and John Cale together, it's like the Beatles. You know, if, if John Lennon had not met Paul McCartney, no doubt they both would have had uh, rock and roll bands that would have been good, but uh, they would have been completely different to uh, the Beatles. Let's just be glad that hummingbirds don't fart. <laughs> Indeed. I'm thankful for that every day. So let's set the scene um, a little bit. You know, tell us about Pickwick City. That was, as you said, it was a budget record label. How did that operation work? Well, first, I want to separate Pickwick from Pickwick City. Pickwick, also known as the parent company, was Pickwick International Limited, was the, the parent company. Pickwick City was, in mid-1964, a brand-new boutique label uh, that was a subsidiary of Pickwick International that was um, founded by a young musician from New York named Terry Phillips. Pickwick International budget label basically is a company that, um, rather than releasing music that is designed to compete in the ordinary marketplace of a given demographic, that's how a standard record label generally functions. The budget record labels look for um, end runs, ways around standard levels of competing via radio play. Uh, they're not, budget labels don't promote artists per se. They have schemes, tactics, and Pickwick was not the first, but one of the largest, most successful, and most diverse of the budget labels. One of the um, one of the methods, the techniques of budget record company would be to uh, what's the right word is to to deceive customers and potential customers. Pickwick would have record albums that would indicate having a star performer. Uh, Neil Sedaka was one. Uh, Jan and Dean was another. Um, Betty Everett was another. Star performers, and it they designed the records to look as if you're buying an album of that artist and maybe a brand new art album of brand new songs, when in fact their technique, a, a common technique, would be to buy early and therefore inexpensive tapes by an artist who then went on to become a star uh, and buy only a few songs, usually from a different company than that performer became a star on. And they might have two sides. They might have four sides. Put those together on an album and you have to fill out the rest of the album with stuff. And that would be very inexpensively, quickly made in-house tracks. So the customer would believe they're buying a record by a star performer and in fact be buying a record that two-thirds or three-quarters of which would be by someone they never heard of and probably are not interested in. And uh, they're called budget labels because uh, in exchange for this deception, the records would be very inexpensive. Uh, typically at the time in the 1960s, a budget album of this sort would be a dollar or really 99 cents. Pharmacies would often have a rack of cheap albums. And um, that's the essence of uh, how budget labels operated. And Pickwick, as I said, one of the biggest. They started in the early 1950s. And by mid-60s, the way Terry Phillips and Pickwick City came in, uh, Cy Leslie, the founder and president of Pickwick, um, had made an agreement with Terry Phillips to form a legitimate operation within Pickwick. 
they were actually going to sell records based on the quality of the music. And they were trying to compete compete in the in the pop music marketplace. So how did Lou Reed become involved with Pickwick City? Uh, Syracuse University, which is in, I believe, kind of central New York state, but it's not way upstate. It's in the middle of the state. It's it's a, a locus for uh, for this origin of this story, because um, Cy Leslie was a graduate of Syracuse University. Lou Reed in May of 1964 had just graduated Syracuse. And Terry Phillips, not from Syracuse University, but he had a first cousin named Leslie Silverman, who was a student at Syracuse. And Terry's idea for the beginning of his new division of legitimate, proper pop rock and roll music in in 1964, certainly at the height of the British invasion, he wanted something kind of Beatlesque to uh, initiate his new label. But he also had an impulse towards something kind of wild or what he would term left field. And describing what he's interested in to his cousin, she knew of a musician who played at bars and nightclubs in and around Syracuse. Uh, that was Lou Reed. He uh, had a university band called L.A. and the El Dorados, and he was guitar player. And uh, unlike most bar bands, his band did some originals that were his early compositions. Uh, Leslie Silverman's fiance, a guy named Don Shupak, was manager of another group on this same scene and not only bars and nightclubs of course fraternity sorority dances were also a very common uh type of event around colleges and uh Don Chupak was booking a group called all he was managing a group called All Night Workers which um was on that same circuit well don't you ever was also informally doing some booking for L.A. in the El Dorados. So through Don Shupak's involvement, uh, Leslie Silverman, Silverman was aware of the, the music scene around there, and she thought when Terry described his criteria, she recommended Lou Reed. And Don Shupak also recommended to Terry the All Night Workers. He came up to Syracuse, where both the groups played on the same bill, and was interested in both of them, but in particular, Lou Reed. Leslie explained to him, the guy can't play, he can't sing, but he's got something. <laughs> and Terry was looking for something that he couldn't, was not clearly defined. And uh, he heard that in Lou. Uh, so that was the first signing. He made Lou Reed the first signing for his new company as both uh, a writer and a singer. And, and as you explain in the story, he actually, uh, Terry actually went and met with Lou's parents to sort of assure them that uh, uh, this was all a legit uh, business deal and, and that the son was in capable hands. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Lou was from Long Island, a town called Freeport. And so I, I never did determine whether Lou who was already of age of majority, whether he'd already signed a contract with Terry and the parents just wanted reassurance, even though they couldn't change that, or, or whether they wanted a reassurance before they would allow Lou to sign with Terry. 
in either event, he, he agreed to meet with the parents and he told me that he met with them several times. And um, Terry was rather appalled by the way Lou would treat his parents, that he found him emotionally abusive of his parents, that the parents were very likable and very naturally concerned for their son, but that Lou was already exhibiting characteristics of uh, an extreme hostility and controlling behavior, put him off to the guy early on, and yet still wanted to uh, per pursue working with him. So met with him, and, and he and the parents got along well, and eventually they gave Lou, whether formally or informally, I don't know, but they gave the okay for Lou to proceed working uh, with Terry. The start of his working there was delayed, however, because Lou came down with hepatitis uh, around the summer of 64 and did not start working there until sometime in September. Okay. So, yeah, you mentioned you talked to Terry Phillips. Before we get into uh, Lou's adventures at Pickwick City, um, how did you go about putting this story together, you know, given that most of the principal parties were no longer available and, and in many cases deceased? I have been a big fan of Terry Phillips' work, uh, primarily the stuff he did with uh, within Pickwick, but also later stuff that he did as the principal of a later 60s label called Perception Records. He's a big fan of his and uh, had been wanting to interview him for a very long time, did not have an idea of how to locate him. Richie Unterberger, a friend and colleague, uh, who came out with a fantastic book about the Velvet Underground in 2009 titled White Light, White Heat, which is a chronological story of Velvet Underground. It's magnificently researched. Yep. And he had located Terry. And when I read his book, I was really envious that he had found the guy and gotten much of the interview <laughs> I wanted to have. But... About a year and a half ago, I came up with the idea that is this article here, which is I began focusing on the moment of the first meeting of Reed and Kale, and then kind of um, what what the events leading up to and emanating from that. And that gave me the impetus, kind of the excuse to ask if Richie could help me get in touch with Terry Phillips and interview him in, uh, ask questions that... Richie had touched on, but I wanted to go deeper. Right. And that's what happened. I got to speak with Terry um, about a year ago. Unfortunately, at age 84, I believe he was at the time, his memory for these particular events was not really sound. Um, his memory seemed to be very fine in many ways, and he's in a different career working in medical technology now, but he's still working. He's very sharp. And very enthusiastic and quite successful in his new career. But these particular events, the, the Lou Reed, John Cale portion of his career is very fuzzy. And with less factual information coming from that interview than I'd hoped for, I had to put together a different strategy for acquiring facts. Uh, the other principal who is still alive and still in the public eye is John Cale and whose memory is also intact, but I was unable to make contact with him. 
uh, I, I kind of doubt that he would have given me the kind of interview, detailed, hard, detailed information about these events, even if I had made contact. So I wasn't too disappointed. So my approach then became find every quote about these events that I could from published and in, in some cases n unpublished sources and try and make the most sense I could of those. The main interviewees who I found quotes for were uh, John Cale, who addressed these issues in his autobiography, What's Welsh for Zen, which I think is from the late 90s. Fantastic book. Um, very hard to read because the book, uh, at least the edition I have, suffers from gross over-design. Yep. Yeah, I agree, yeah. And I really wish that somebody would uh, republish this in a easier to read uh, uh, format because it's it's really really interesting. So that was one source. Uh, Tony Conrad, who we'll get to a little bit later, who was involved in these events, spoke several times on the record. One of my main sources for quotes was uptight. Uh, which was the very first significant Velvet Underground biography. It was written by, co-written by a one of the principals of the story, Gerard Malanga, who was not a musician, but he was a dancer in the exploding plastic inevitable happening extravaganza that involved the Velvets at the beginning of their career. And his collaborator on that was Victor Bacris, a uh, professional writer and researcher. In fact, Victor w worked on three different books that were prominent sources for me. Besides Uptight, he also collaborated. He was the ghostwriter or the collaborator with John Cale on What's Welsh for Zen, and then later wrote an unauthorized biography of Lou Reed called Transformer. Uh, I remember that that book was being researched at the time that the Velvet Underground was, um, the members were trying to get together for a reunion, and the other members had to tread lightly with Reed, because he's, <laughs> he's like that. Uh, and so I got a call from Sterling Morrison desperately asking me to not participate if Gerard, if Victor rather, asked me uh, to um, to help with the book. And in fact, he did ask and I had to decline out of loyalty to Sterling. But they were, um, my point being that um, as much as Victor got to work intimately with John Cale on his autobiography, he had uh, a distinct lack of principal resources for Transformers. So he was... Uh, very much involved in these stories, and uh, I quoted from these sources liberally. And then I had literally forgotten about the fact, Richie Unterberger had to remind me that my own Velvet Underground fanzine had published uh, back in seven, no, back in 83, an interview with Tony Conrad on, that was largely about these topics. And I'd forgotten all about it, and uh, that turned out to be a very um, fruitful source. <laughs> and several other biographies of Reed that had interviewed Terry Phillips, uh, I sourced those, and et cetera. So prominent principles were these biography interviews with Terry Phillips, 
Lou Reed biography interviews John Cale in several sources and Tony Conrad in several sources and then a few other um, bits and pieces here and there. And so it was up to me to try to make the most sense that I could and try to get a, as clear a sense of what really happened as I could. And when I wasn't able to do that, try and uh, suggest possibilities and just maybe indicate how I visualize it and, and help the reader come up with their own visualization just through prompts, right? information and, and prompts of how things might have been. We'll be right back. So let's go back to Pickwick City. Lou Reed is uh, recovering from his uh, bout of hepatitis, and he's about to start work um, working for Terry Phillips for this uh, project he has in mind. So let's talk about the recording session for The Ostrich. Who was there? What happened? Can you describe that? I believe that the first thing that they came up with when they started working together was The Ostrich, uh, which is the key track to this whole story. Right. The Ostrich came about, this would be, I believe, sometime in early November of 64. And Lou had come up with at least an idea for a song lyric and, and probably at least a, a basis of the lyric for a song that was uh, a dance instruction song, which was very popular at the time. And his dance uh, was titled The Ostrich. Uh, many of the dance instruction songs were about the uh, the motions of particular animals. But Lou being kind of a um, little bent to begin with, and his, his song was kind of a parody of the format. And he's got a line uh, basically instructing that the dancer somehow put their head on the floor and then step on it. That was the crux of his dance song, The Ostrich. Uh, in the in the office slash studio uh, that Terry Phillips had at the back of the Pickwick warehouse, he was jamming there one afternoon trying to work up a new song and came up with a riff and was about to, uh, he was just meandering. And Terry liked what he heard and said, hold it, hold it, work on that. And that he then developed into the basic riff of the ostrich. The bass part of the ostrich is notably taken from uh, Then He Kissed Me, the Crystal song by Phil Spector. Right. Meanwhile, though, Lou was kind of a mess. Um, he'd been through uh, a lot of psychological problems and in and out of various therapies and at this point was on a uh, depressive drug called Placidil and according to Terry in one of the interviews, in a couple of the interviews that I sourced, Lou was passing out at work on occasion. He had to be, they had to call an ambulance at one time and to make the most of that, Terry and the colleagues there all got high or drunk as well to kind of match Lou's <laughs> state, the state right. that he was in at the time that I uh, was working out the ostrich. And so for the session, they were apparently all high and or drunk. 
And, and it sounds like it. Yeah, it's a pretty depraved sounding record. I listened to it many times in a row on working on the article and trying to convince myself whether it was just kind of in the context of a party record with um, whooping, hollering, hand clap sounds, which was very common at the time. If there was something uh, unique about this, if there was something really more than just an ordinary party record, and I really do sense sound of something pretty loopy going on there's something really um yeah depraved sounding in this record it is the group became called was dubbed the primitives and that's it i mean it's truly primitive and the fact of <laughs> i think there's two chords to the song and uh that adds to the the sense of this being like especially wild and a little demented which turned out to be a factor that Terry loved about it. Right, and not only is it only two chords, but the, the way that Lou tuned his guitar, it, it later became, you know, even on the Velvet Underground's first album, they dubbed it Ostrich Guitar. This was a certain kind of tuning that he had. Yeah, that's definitely one of the, the keys to the entire story. Uh, it is, in, in fact, in some ways, the key to this entire story is that um, apparently all six strings of the guitar were tuned to the same note. And uh, Lou has said a couple of times in subsequent interviews, which I quote, that he picked this up from one of the two other members of this uh, studio outfit, which was called uh, Lee Harridan Productions. There was no Lee Harridan Terry Phillips named it after syllables of his uh, parents and brother, uh, after their names, uh, <laughs> that he formed this this non-existent character of Lee Harridan. And so one of the other members of this outfit was named Jerry Vance. The other was named Jimmy Sims. These were uh, old friends and, say, white doo-wop New York doo-wop scene colleagues of Terry's that he brought into Lee Harridan Productions. So Lou was quoted as saying that Jerry Vance once showed him uh, this technique of tuning to one chord that for Jerry, it was just a lark, but Lou thought it sounded cool. And he chose to use that tuning for this session. Uh, it really shows up particularly on the solo, which is remarkable. Uh, he plays on only three bars of the solo is just uh just a little bit of solo but from the first time i heard the ostrich i and i had already of course heard the velvet underground and was familiar with them but i heard a thread a common thread i didn't know how to articulate it but i felt it i felt this is clearly the same guy as plays these uh one of the two guitars in velvet underground yeah um at one point in the lyrics, Lou tries to do the old uh, R&B thing of play a little quiet now, play, you know, take it down. And they don't. <laughs> they just keep <laughs> blasting at the same level that they were, whether they couldn't hear him or ignored him or were just in that state that I alluded to. I don't know, but they just <laughs> yeah. don't bother taking it down. Yeah, they thought they were taking it down, but they did not take oh, it down. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you take it down? Well, what are you talking about? I did. <laughs> I was playing as quiet as I could. 
Yeah, and I really tried to put together exactly who was playing, exactly what instrument on the record. Didn't quite nail it, but I got as close to it as I was able to of what instruments are on it and who's playing them and how many voices, because as I was trying to express, it it does have the party record sound of hooping and hollering going on in the background. And uh, they have a phrase they came up with. It's... uh, do a do a do a duba. That's kind of the refrain <laughs> of the song uh, that they go through a few yeah. times. There's a lot of falsetto shrieking in there as part of it. Yeah, yeah, that might be the the doo wop influence coming through. <laughs> oh, and the hand claps. <laughs> oh yeah. Instrumentally, though, it's very minimal. Yeah, uh, very, very minimal, and and I suppose that must be why Terry came up with the name. The group has got to be called the Primitives because yeah, that immediately suggested itself. Yeah, and all these elements of the the hooping and and the uh, the tuned to the the ostrich tuning. Yes, we were saying yeah, Lou uh, later on the uh, Banana album used that same tuning for a couple of songs. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head which they were. I think Venus and First perhaps and All Tomorrow's Parties. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Perhaps, but at any rate, he called it Ostrich Tuning on the Banana album, which was a reference that was lost at the time. It wasn't until much later that people put together the ostrich was Lou Reed, and he was recalling the ostrich uh, at the time of making of the Banana album. Right. So having come up with this uh, identity for the group, the Primitives, Terry then needs to put together a version of the Primitives because he wants to actually promote this record. You know, it's not going to be like a budget rack job uh, thing. It's going to be actually a 45, and he wants to maybe get it on the radio and maybe get it into the charts, right? Yeah, that was um, part of his original agreement with forming his kind of boutique operation at Pickwick was that he would have a promotion budget. And Terry loved the record. He felt it was uh, a accumulation of what he had intended when he started Pickwick City and when he signed Lou Reed he th- this was a culmination is the word I'm looking for uh and so he was very hot on it and of course it was a time of dance step records it was a time of party records and it was of course a time of Beatlemania this is getting late in 64 but certainly British invasion Beatlemania is still all the rage and he felt this record was within that uh, within that wheelhouse. That that was kind of the look he wanted to present was uh, Beatlesque and British styled. And the guys himself and Vance and Sims were straighter looking than that. Had shorter uh, collegiate haircuts. And um, for whatever reason, whether it was not the right look or they just did, weren't interested, they were not going to go out on a, on the road and promote this record in live performance. Reed was going to, but uh, right. Terry decided he wanted guys who had the right look 
And it seems to me that the implication of that was that the group was going to mime to the recordings rather than actually perform live. And that's a crucial distinction because it it indicates whether he needed to get guys who only had the look and could just pretend to strum and fret, or if he needed musicians of some kind. Uh, the way he pursued outfitting the rest of the group or, or acquiring the, the other primitives was to either make a party or attend a already existing party. That I never determined, but there was a party and Terry and Jerry Vance attended to scout for guys who had the the British invasion look. Right. This again be maybe mid-November 64, and they spot guys who have the look they are after uh, and approached them and started talking. And perhaps just as an icebreaker, they asked, are you musicians? Again, I... I don't think they really needed musicians, but they asked it, and these guys happened to be musicians. The two were John Cale and Tony Conrad, and they said yes. And I think there may well have been a um, a gap in meaning here, uh, because Terry needed rock musicians, and they were musicians of a totally different sort. Right. They were coming out of avant-garde and classical background, and... Uh, were interested in rock music, but barely knew anything about it. Right. Yeah. And it's ironic, you know, Kale being British, you know, Welsh, uh, and they were looking for a British invasion type <laughs> looking band, but he was about as far removed from a British invasion cat as you could uh, imagine at that time. Well, from the interviews that I've uh, sourced, it's actually really interesting where these two guys who were at this point roommates in an apartment in the Lower East Side on uh, a building at 56 Ludlow Street, which which was, became an important locus of avant-garde music. But uh, they were starting to listen to rock music clinically. Uh, they were fascinated in particular by um, overtones in rock music, very close harmonies, and were not listening to it like casual fans saying this is groovy so I, I doubt at the time they could have named five Beatles songs uh, and so there's a disjunction of intent between the questioners and the questioned here and yet they managed to come to an agreement uh, Terry and Jerry suggested well we're looking for guys to fill out this quartet to do a little bit of touring to promote a new record, and are you interested? And they said yes. Uh, in the article, I express uh, several ideas of, of what they might have been thinking, and uh, it amuses me to try and visualize at what point did the two parties come to recognize that the term that they were using, musician, meant something very different on each side. And... Um, <laughs> we can all visualize that in our different ways because we don't have the actual information. Uh, even if I were to get an interview with John Cale, I doubt he would remember clearly what he was thinking at the time. But um, it's just this uh, really amusing, interesting moment of a question, a misunderstanding that led to this agreement. And they said they would 
they would they agreed to do it. I think I the pay I think was something like twenty five dollars a week or twenty five dollars a show, and whether that was for both of them or individually, I don't know. But they were to come out to Pickwick City or to Long Island City the very next day, a Sunday, to begin work on this new project of the performance primitives. It's also very amusing to me, and there's a lot of imaginary uh, speculative variations of the fact that on the one side were these white doo-wop cats, on the other side these avant-garde classical cats, and in the middle, the linchpin is Lou Reed, the hardcore rock and roller. And they're both editions of the primitives. The musical backgrounds are, are quite wildly, widely divergent. So now we've reached this place, a Sunday in November 1964, where the moment happens. John Cale meets Lou Reed. So describe what you've been able to find out about that well, you know, actual important moment. I have to introduce yet another coincidence, kind of far-fetched thing that just fell neatly and beautifully into place here, like so much of the rest of this story. When Tony and John agreed to uh, sign on for this venture, Jerry and Terry asked, do you know a drummer? And they happened to know a drummer. And they volunteered the service of their friend, Walter Demaria, who uh, was primarily a, a visual artist, primarily a sculptor, but also was a uh, had a background as a rather skilled and talented jazz drummer. Uh, he was from the Bay Area in California, where he had met and performed and jammed with a guy named Lamont Young, who was another crucial figure in right. this story, even though he and Terry Phillips never met. Each of them had become kind of um, workshops for the other, the people who were aligning in this project. So Lamont Young, at this point, was working in Lower East Side and was developing a music based on extended, hours-long extended drones on one note. At this point, they had not yet even had a name for the grouping. Uh, there were various lineups, but um, at this point, the lineup had, uh, at least for the time being, settled into what would be the most um, the most significant lineup of the group. The group then became known as Theater of Eternal Music, and was informally named the Dream Syndicate. And right. Tony Conrad played violin. At the time, of course, nobody was aware of that. Uh, and also because I am not sure, and in the article I provide several possibilities, but don't know for certain if they were still intended to only mime to the songs or if the fact that they turned out to be, the people selected turned out to be musicians they were intending to actually play the songs or maybe mime them accurately, uh, don't really know. But we do have um, 
evidence from some of the interviews that Lou started showing them the chords to the songs. The songs would only be two songs. I think the kinds of performances lined up for them would be requiring only two songs, and they only had two songs. The flip side of The Ostrich was uh, a song called Sneaky Pete, which is in the same style. It's a really great track. It's not as heavy and as perfect and rousing as The Ostrich, but it's a very good accompanying side. And um, again, I don't think John or Tony had played bass or guitar before, but they were good enough musicians that certainly if they had to do the fingering without amplification, they could come up with that pretty quickly. I would imagine so, yeah. Yeah, and again, it's possible that for some of the shows they were actually going to perform. Uh, they were good enough musicians, they could probably stumble through with very little exposure to these instruments before um, and come up with something passable, even if they were amplified. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Kale played the viola, and uh, learning two chords, he probably, you know... <laughs> <laughs> he probably chuckled, you know, when he said, oh, is that it? Yeah, except, except, yes, that's true. But in showing them the song, uh, the Lou and, uh, excuse me, Tony, Conrad, John Cale saw that Lou had tuned all the strings to one note. And they kind of gasped because... Yeah. That was uh, a key that was key to the essence of what they were doing with Lamont Young. Uh, it was all notes, all strings uh, tuned to the same pitch. And uh, that's that's just a moment where they were they realized they were a, arrived at the same solution from different directions and recognized this common ground that began to unite them. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. In part two of our special Velvet Underground episode, we'll be discussing more of Lou Reed's activities at Pickwick Records, the first public appearances of The Primitives, the Soundsville LP, the Surfsiders, and Lou's very first collaboration with John Cale, Why Don't You Smile, a song recorded by the All Night Workers, the Downliner Sect, and numerous other bands in subsequent decades. You can read Phil Milstein's feature story on Pickwick City and the first meeting of Lou Reed and John Cale in issue number 60 of Ugly Things magazine, which is available at UglyThings.com. That's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please support us on Patreon. All contributions are deeply appreciated. Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content, including the 1963 brochure for the Berkshire Music Center in Tanglewood, where John Cale was studying and performing, and a rare 1968 radio interview with John and Lou. Not only that, VIP and All Access members can also listen to part two of this episode. The rest of you will have to wait another two weeks for that. 
please consider joining us. It will allow us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, and Ray Brandist. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.